a new episode of the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. This week, we're featuring a special Q&A from the 60th New York Film Festival with the Dry Longzo director, Colleen Smith, moderated by director and president of the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures, Jacqueline Stewart. Colleen Smith's 1998 feature debut, a landmark in American independent cinema, follows Pika, a woman in a photography class in Oakland, as she begins photographing the young black men of her neighborhood having witnessed so many of them fall victim to senseless murder and fearing the possibility of their becoming extinct altogether. This project serves as a point of departure for Smith to explore Pika's relationship with her family, as well as her relationship with a friend who becomes the victim of an enigmatic and elusive serial killer lurking in the background. An endearingly rich work of DIY filmmaking, Dry Longzo remains a resonant and visionary examination of violence and its reverberations, friendships, and gender. The new 4K restoration of Dry Lonzo opens next Friday, March 17th, in our theaters with a filmmaker Q&A with Smith on opening night. On the occasion of the theatrical release of the NYFF60 selection, we are also showing two shorts programs of Smith's short films on Friday, March 17th, with an intro from Smith, and Sunday, March 19th. Get tickets to Dry Longzo and both shorts programs and receive an automatic discount package of $20 for the general public and $15 for FLC members. Explore showtimes and get tickets at filmlink.org slash drylongzo. Colleen, you didn't have much to say beforehand, <laughs> but I hope you have to say more now. I hope so too. <laughs> so I remember seeing, um, I think it was in... Zainabu Irene Davis's documentary. No, no, no. It was in Yvonne's documentary, Sisters in Cinema. Oh. I think you're, you talk about this film. What I remember, here's what I remember. Okay. I remember that you said that you were really thinking about the whole wave of independent film that was happening in the late 90s, mm -hmm. mid to late 90s. Mm -hmm. And Kevin Smith said something like, yeah, I made Clerks for $10,000. And you had gotten a grant for 30000 And you thought, oh, I can make three movies for $30,000. <laughs> right. But then you were really quickly disabused of that notion. So I just hope that you could take us back to the moment when you were starting to make this film. Yeah, yeah. And what you thought the possibilities were going to be for this and then also for future work that you were going to do, feature-length independent films. Sure. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the 90s, it was like this, this crazy wave of filmmakers and the, the press, the publicity leading them was that they were made for $7,500, $10,000, and not being in the industry, not knowing what it takes to make a feature film, I believe that. <laughs> but, um, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I did get this huge grant, which at that time was more money than I had ever seen in my life, $35,000 from the Rockefeller Media Fellowship. And I, and I was like, let's go. Like, you know what I mean? I was like Spike Lee, it like led the led the charge, and I thought, oh, like let's let's like let's see if we can like you know do something, um, and 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 I wanted to shoot on film because it's kind of like the medium that I knew that I'd been working on, and digital and video just wasn't wasn't uh, I don't I mean I, how do I say? the barriers to being in the digital world were really profound. More profound than dodging phone calls from the lab <laughs> wanting their money. Let's put it that way. That was easier than working in digital. So I, I just, it was just, I was so naive. We all, thank goodness, were very naive. And we set out uh, the summer of uh, 95 in Oakland to shoot this film. And 
um, we knew we didn't have a lot of money, but the, like, the second I did do something like a budget, I was like, oh yeah, no. Uh, everything I wanted to do was like shift gears, you know? Um, and so everything, every solution, every, almost every, everything in the film, there's like a way that I can watch it through the lens of scarcity or austerity, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I would love to hear you say more about that, because I think this is the first time that I noticed, looking at the credits, that you did the ADR work on this oh film. And I was really, this restoration is wonderful, both in terms of visuals, but also in terms of the sound. So I was just picking up more on what was happening to imply things off screen through sound. And I'm assuming that's one of the ways that you figured out how you could do some of the storytelling without the resources you thought you would have. Yeah, and I mean, this is where being in film school while I was editing this was actually helpful because I had a really great sound teacher and she, she just really opened my mind to what was possible. And the first thing she did in this class I took with her was she showed us this, this uh, film and one, and one version had really degraded image but really wonderful sound. And the other, it's the same image, but the image was a very high quality, but with poor sound, and asked us which one played better. And it was like kind of unanimous that the poor image, great sound played better. And it just got me thinking about the way that sound really just inhabits your body, the way it works on you without you even realizing it. You know what I mean? An image is something that we can interpret and, and we are doing so much filtering all the time, but sound enters us like, it, like it just come without us even knowing what it's doing. And that seemed like a really powerful tool that I just had to dig in because I had so little like material, like, you know, visual material, you know what I mean? Yeah. Exactly. yeah. So when Pika and Toby are wheat pasting and you get the ominous, and I do mean ominous sounds. <laughs> I leaned in, yeah. You leaned in, yes. So could you talk about the tone mixing that you're doing in the film because obviously that's one of the things that people talked about a lot when it was released and, and, and for some it was like, yeah, this is what really gives us this compelling sense of the dangers that black people are facing, right, in their communities. On the other hand, it was like, well, you know, wh what is this? Is it a thriller? Is it a coming of age kind of story? But when you were, when you were conceptualizing it and then actually continuing to conceptualize as you were making the film. And then in post-production, how are you thinking about the kinds of shifts in tone that this film has? Yeah, you know, I think, I, I still think this way where the writing is a one way of making a movie, the shooting, you're rewriting the movie, the editing, you're rewriting the movie, right? So it wasn't until in the editing that I realized that I had filmed murders. And I had films like someone stalking another person. And I think like this is probably more than I should share, but I, it was like as I was watching that in the editing room that that suddenly became something serious. Um, whereas I'm sad to say, but I felt like, I mean, maybe just living in the, in the early 90s, like Jeopardy just felt so normal that I didn't, I didn't, I like people really were just getting shot and couldn't really go to a hip hop show without someone popping off a gun. Like, it was just like mundane. Violence was so mundane. Yeah, it is. It is. It, it, violence is so mundane that it wasn't until I realized that I was, I was creating those images that I, I uh, was confronted with what that meant. And then I, I think I tipped, I tipped the movie. I didn't know how to not say, this is, this is bad, everybody. This is really bad. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? 
Um, but in terms of the tone being confusing, I mean, the thing that's always confused me the most, I don't know if this is when we're supposed to get in this, but the thing that's always confused me the most is that it wasn't always evident to audiences that it was a film about two black girls. And, um, and I still kind of like, when I do watch the film, I still wonder about, like, about that. Like, how you spend 82 minutes basically with two black girls and then think it's about something else. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do know what you mean, yes. Yeah. Um, I think we know why. <laughs> uh, so then let's talk about like how you came up with the, 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 top, the topic, I guess, that sure. Pika is exploring, Absolutely. because she's exploring through this photography project right. the issue of violence against black men. Right. So it makes sense on a, on a certain level that that's the way that she would be experiencing so much violence, or what we would at that time, I guess, or maybe still consider to be like the most prevalent form of anti-black violence. Right. But what your film is also getting at are the many layers of violence, which includes violence against women and girls. Yeah. Yeah, I think, again, this film really is a time capsule in the sense that uh, that rhetoric around the black man as an endangered species was everywhere, particularly in hip hop, and, and um, was wholly internalized by everyone in my world, you know what I mean? And, um, and I and 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 not only internalized, but it was a fact. So I I thought I was when I when I was thinking about a character and like some some kind of like urgent atmosphere in which she could be. That seemed like the obvious discourse, right? And um, to make the Polaroids that you see in the film, I had to go around asking people, if I young black men, if I could take their picture. And so the dialogue in that film is basically what the rap that I would use, like, excuse me, can I take your picture? What for? Well, I'm making a film about young black men being an endangered species. And, and they would say, okay. And, 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 but then they'd say, yeah, but why do you want to take my picture? And I was like, well, because I want to preserve your image. And they'd be like, whoa. Wow. <laughs> right, right. Uh-huh. <laughs> and they'd be like, okay. Uh, very few refusals, um, uh, and um, and I think I think it was just so much a part of the culture. And then what I think now, even looking at like the art direction in Pika's room, which I really spent time trying to cobble together an environment, you can see that she's inside of this really sort of patriarchal construct. All of her idols, all of the books she reads, everything is about men. Um, and this is while I was reading Bell Hooks and Michelle Wallace and Audre Lorde. Pika's reading Miles Davis and S Stanley Crouch and listening to Bob, you know what I mean? Yes, yes. I don't know. Yeah, so then when she's reciting to her professor why she's doing this project, mm -hmm. I think you capture the sort of rote internalization mm -hmm. in the way that the camera pans across her and, she, and her performances, which she rattles off these statistics. Mm -hmm. That's, the, that's what she's paying attention to. But then we know personally, emotionally, when she sees this other young black woman being you know, victimized, she immediately wants to help. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me that a lot of it is the connection that she has to make across all these forms of violence right. that she's experiencing. Yeah, I mean, to me, that, that instance, like how Toby and Pika meet, um, there's another scene in the film also that to me is really critical about the relationship where and I'm really grateful to the actors because I think they played it this way and I think it's because of the way we talked about it where 
they are not sure about their friendship. They're not sure about its value. Uh, it takes a lot for them to arrive at um, a, a recognition that their friendship is important. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. And um, and they really they they really play it that way. So I think you know, Pika is this you know spunky girl who has a sense of right and wrong, and she sees wrong, and so she reaches out to help. But she kind of goes, then she just goes on about her business. She's not that worried about, you know what I mean? Yes. And then even when she meets her again, she kind of mocks her, is like, oh my God, you're that boy. Like, you know what I mean? She, like, empathy is not really yeah, yeah. a thing. Um, and, and then again, even once they become friends, uh, uh, they break up because mm-hmm. the, 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 like, I guess the specter of this friendship is just too, mm-hmm. is, is, is this really important? Is this really a thing? You and the class I mean? difference between them. And the class difference, yeah. 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 I love that because yeah. friendships are complicated yeah. and it's not just like, yes, now we're allies and. Right. We're just besties. Like, yeah, like they have to really work through it and they're mm-hmm. just not sure. They don't, I don't even know like where the tools for that would come from. So they're just kind of doing it. You yeah. know what I mean? Yes. So then let's talk about that in relation to the ways that Toby helps her with her project at the end because there's this really lovely moment when she's helping her glue things together and she's offering to cater the event <laughs> um, and I've always wondered just how much Pika's process of finishing that project of getting it you know kind of fulfilling the class assignment right making her own gallery how much does that reflect the way that you were as an art student um, trying to get your projects I'm together. embarrassed to say 100%, but it's more complicated than that. Like, not, again, like, um, I, I didn't go to art school, or I went to film school, and I, it was a very different conversation than what would have been had with Mr. Yamato, but I, I, uh, I, I, I've always, I've always really enjoyed the part of filmmaking that is the social. Um, I really like what happens when you set a camera out on a sidewalk in, in a neighborhood like West Oakland and what happens, something happens. And um, I really like just how people are drawn to the fact that someone's making something and they wanna help. And I try, I really always try to make space for that desire because I love seeing it in people, this desire to help create something. Um, but I don't know if I would have said that about myself how long ago now, like 25 years ago. Uh, I w- I'm not sure if that was something I was really aware of, but even there's like so many anecdotes about the process of making this. Even like the artist who did make the sculptures, Rura uh, Ogunji, who is a prominent artist now, mm-hmm. um, about the sociality that she had to engage in to build those. It's just like all that was all happening, yeah. Yeah, and it's not all. Everybody's happy, everybody's proud. Some people get it, some people are confused. Then we have the woman who's like, this is my space, you took over my space. So what is she doing there? And what was the importance of that character for I you? Mean, she's crucial in so many ways. One is that she wasn't written into the script. She's somebody that we met in Oakland. She's one of the people who rolled up on our set. Our set being this house, this abandoned house that we um, took over. We didn't take over, we asked permission, but the people who owned it said, yeah, you can use it if you buy us a water heater. And, and install it, so we did. And um, they rolled up onto that house and were like, what are you doing? We, we do the theater in this neighborhood. Like, it was a mother and daughter. And, and I was like, really, you act? Oh my gosh, like, do you wanna be in the movie? She's, and that just changed the whole, it went from like, what are you doing here to like, let me tell you what we can do for you, you know what I mean? <laughs> and, um, 
and and uh, she she just had this amazing trickster personality, and so we like came up with this character for her that we could inject like in transitions, you know. But to end on her seemed uh, that was a very conscious decision that this woman who was just sort of like floating in and out and is like sometimes nonsensical but always lucid mm -hmm. uh, that she would be and and also kind of like in opposition to and yet absorbed by and a part of what's happening you know yeah. she gets her plate of food just like everybody else yes. you know that she would be the person that we we see leave the frame last that was important that she's mm. she's important you yeah. know yeah totally totally so the restoration of this mm -hmm. film <laughs> You giggle, <laughs> but I'm just really curious about what it's like for you, the process, but also what it's like for you to return to the work now. You know, in some cases, people seem to be really excited that a film is restored to what it used to look like. In lots of cases with independent films, the restoration yeah. exceeds what the original prints looked like because you're finally able to muster the resources and really, like, take the time to get things the right way. Is that the case for Absolutely. you? Absolutely. I was, I, I was just talking to Brian about the fact that the print that we had circulating in festivals was pretty much a one-light print. Like, I couldn't afford to sit with a timer, so I sent him notes, written notes, with, like, men at this time, this, try to do this. I didn't even know what was really possible with timing because I could never afford to do the timing with the lab. They charge you by the hour. So... Uh, I got what I got, and I was like, looks pretty good, it's all right. <laughs> but then when I saw what, what was possible, yeah. and again, technology has advanced greatly, so I was literally like, they were doing things to this print where I was like, do you even need to know how to expose film anymore? Like, do you, you can just turn on the camera and point at something, and then the timer can like conjure an image out of nothing. Wow. Like, if only I'd known, like, you know what I mean? It was incredible. Um, so that was really satisfying. Like yeah. this print lo that looks better than the print ever looked. And the sound too, it was really nice to kind of go in there and try and ex excavate what we could and bring it, make it do things that I wasn't able to get it to do the first time around. Wow, that's exciting. That yeah. must feel good. It's a really, really, really wonderful gift. Yeah, so everybody needs to see this. <laughs> this restoration because it closer, you know, embodies what you wanted in the first place. It does. Yeah. What was it like for you when the film started to circulate, even though it didn't totally look the way you wanted it to, but it was getting such high praise? Um, were you surprised? Were you excited about that? I, I, I was surprised. I was, I was surprised on one hand, but then on the other hand, there was a real disconnect between the way that people, when I screened the film, received it, and then the way that sort of industry people received it. There was a real disconnect. So people like, you know, film movie goers were like, love this movie. And then uh, like uh, producers or, you know, like development people would be like, well, you have, you seem to have some promise. You seem to have some talent. Well, like, let's see what you do next. Good luck. Like, you know what I mean? And that was really confusing. Um, it was really confusing to be finally like in the in club with all of these like indie guys and they're all cool they're like nice guys i remember jim jim mckay was like whatever you do colleen don't turn down those commercials i thought i was above the commercials and i turned them down i really wish i'd just gotten that money i was like what commercials 
Uh, it was just a, I was living in a, it was like a very different, different world, you know? Um, like what the film seemed to be producing in terms of a conversation response with audiences and within the industry. Wow. Yeah, that must have been kind of weird, pretty weird. What did you think you wanted to do next? You know, this? and that's a good question, is because I, I guess, in retrospect, I guess I could say I didn't know. I didn't know that I wasn't going to like the film industry. <laughs> I had to spend like seven years in there to figure that out. Um, I, I thought that, I, I, like the thing is, you know, I was editing, shooting and editing this film while I was in film school. And I went to film school because I was like, I, I feel like I don't, I need to learn more. Like I just wanted to learn more craft and more skills. I was in film school though with people who were like, I'm the next Scorsese. I am the next Spielberg. I am the next Godard just like the world is just waiting for me. They were like so certain of their, their futures in Hollywood and their entitlement to it. Yeah. And I was like, whoa, really? <laughs> so then like out of all of us, I'm the one who gets in the Sundance first out of my peers. And they're like, what? You know what I mean? And then, and, and I, felt, I felt like, oh my God, my friends would literally give a pinky finger for this. I have to like see this through. You know what I mean? Like I just felt like, no. This is, I have been gifted this opportunity with this film. My, my desire for that film was that I would be able to have conversations with the people making culture that I thought were really interesting and exciting and that I would get to join in on those conversations. Um, all the biz, I, I didn't know that in order to do that I had to be, I was so naive, like agent, lawyer, manager, pitches, <laughs> blah, 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 showrunner, blah, like uh -huh. shadowing on TV, like all this stuff that literally just wastes your time. You know what I mean? And then I started ghostwriting to get out of that, just to like, I can, I can write. So I was like, I'll just, I'll write and give like trickles of money coming in that way. But I just didn't realize how much I would hate like the actual culture of the industry. Like I felt like the industry, like when I started making films, I'm sorry I'm being so long winded. No, but this is wonderful. Everybody's riveted by this story. <laughs> I started making films because I wanted to make a, make, make movies that didn't, um, that were, were, I could see myself, like, you know what I mean? Um, and, and I was working in an industry that really, really, really made it clear it didn't want that, like, you know what I mean? I, I can tell more stories about, like, being told to change, you know, the race of certain characters or whatnot and this and that. It was just, like, a very different time than it is now. And I'm just so happy for like the women making films now, the black women making films, running shows, producing films now. Yes. I'm so happy they, they, they stuck with it. I just couldn't. I was, I was maybe, mm -mm, no. Well, okay, maybe personally you couldn't, but what you did opened up the doors and the possibilities for people who came after That's you. That's true, I'm, I'm, just, I'm true. just happy for that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Are you open to taking any of questions course. from folks who are here? We have a couple of minutes. If anyone has a question for Colleen. I think I see a hand right in the middle and then there's one back there. No, that's better. You know, it's funny. Like a lot of people interpret Pika's mother as a complete like neglectful wastrel, wastrel. And I just thought of her as a young mom, you know, and she actually, raised her kid and her kids going to college, she did pretty good as far as I can tell, mm -hmm. you know, and they have to kind of like make their way together, which they're trying to do. 
they don't agree on how things should be done. But, um, you know, in, in, in Pika's adolescent way, like there's ways in which she, she wasn't even accessing like the love her mother had for her, which you see in that moment where she's like, oh, I'm doing this thing. And her mother is like, wait, what? Like, I'm in, like, you know what I mean? So I just thought of her as like, um, um, a lot of my friends had moms, like Pika's moms, and I loved these women. They were generous and um, indulgent in ways that my parents never were. So I have a deep appreciation of them. <laughs> so that's, that's where that relationship came from. There's one back there. Hi. Uh, can you talk about the color palette? I saw a lot of red and yellow, and uh, I wanted to ask, like, uh, what was your motivation behind choosing such bright colors, like of the house, and uh, even uh, like the bandana, and like there are other things which I saw were very bright in nature. You're like talking the about the colors. That I yes. Did. Yes. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for asking that. Actually, that was one of the um, sort of the decisions of about austerity was that paint is cheap. Um, and so we could control huge sections of what was in the frame with with painting surfaces, um, and then choosing like specific palettes based on I don't know characters or certain narrative logics. Does that answer your question? Uh, yes, yes, thank you. Sure. And we're actually already out of time. Okay. <laughs> but we want to thank you, Colleen. Thank you so much.